As a nation, we have often faced existential crisis. The Civil War, the onset of the Industrial Revolution, the robber barons, the Great Depression, McCarthyism, the struggle for racial equality, assassination, and the changes of the 60s. Each time, polarization and the depth of the crisis has led many to believe that the country would not survive in its current form. And yet it has. Today we face a similar time. Extremism is rampant. Nativism has shown its ugly head. The economic divide threatens a new kind of civil war. Racial tensions have flared. Law enforcement is often unchecked. Faith in the nation's operating system is at an all-time low. Is this time different or just another of those crises which we will come through even stronger? Or, as New York Times columnist David Brooks has said, will the laws of gravity simply return? My guest, Andrew Schmuckler, believes that many of us do not fully understand or appreciate what we're up against today. Andrew Schmuckler graduated from Harvard. He was awarded a joint PhD by the University of California, Berkeley, and the Graduate Theological Union. He's the author of numerous books on the challenges to create a more human, just, and viable civilization. He was a Democratic nominee for Congress, a talk show host, and his op-ed pieces have appeared in newspapers around the nation. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Schmuckler to the program to talk about his new book, What We're Up Against, the destructive force at work in our world, and how we can defeat it. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you. Among economists and on Wall Street and in markets, one of the scariest things you can hear people say is this time it's different. As we look out at the crises and problems we face today, the political divide, the, the real difference in worldview among so many people, is something different this time? Well, I think so. I do understand that the this time it's different in the Wall Street world is basically a uh, uh, a way of showing a kind of naivete. It's the trap that people fall into, uh, you know, thinking that the market will never never have a, a, a what goes up comes must come down has been abolished. But uh, you know, I've spent uh, well actually close to a half century trying to understand. Uh, the forces that w- at work in civilized societies. And um, I don't believe that any liberal democracy, uh, and I'm not including uh, the, Wa- the Weimar Republic because it was never very well uh, established in, in that society. Um, ours is a very well established liberal democracy. Uh, I don't think any has ever had to deal with well, for example, a major political party uh, that is like the one of the two we have in America today. Uh, I do think that there are some important ways that this is a recapitulation of the 1850s, but even that um, is, is only a partial parallelism. We've got a, I mean, if you were to ask about today's Republican Party. And I speak not as a partisan, but as an analyst um, and and someone who's spent his life devoted to the the truth. What has the Republican Party done in America in the last, say, well, I don't know exactly where to draw the line, 15 years, um, that has had a constructive effect on the society and also draw up another list and say if you were to make a list of all the various things that the that party has been putting into 
the national conversation, the, the, the assertions that they're making, the major points, and you just sort of go through the newspapers, say, for the last 15 years and look at what's been said uh, from that side and ask how many of these are fundamentally true rather than fundamental false falsehoods. The, the list of constructive things and the list of truthful things is extraordinarily small. And I don't believe that um, even uh, that, that any, any place you look where there's been a liberal democracy, such a thing could have been said. And yet if we look back at the 50s, at the McCarthy period, at blacklisting, at, at what went on and the falsehoods certainly that were put forth by McCarthy yeah. and others during that period, it's not entirely dissimilar. Well, here's the difference. I mean, I grew up, um, I was born in 1946, so you, um, and my parents were, um, were very politically concerned people. Uh, my mom even went on the radio to uh, record an ad against a McCarthyite uh, candidate for office. Uh, I was too young to know exactly what office it was. Um, uh, back uh, in uh, 50, 54, I think it was. Um, so, and, I, and, and, the, and the Army McCarthy hearings were on. And I understand that the McCarthyite uh, witch hunt was a very dark time that... Uh, that had little integrity, and in that sense, it was similar, and it was it imparted brokenness to our society, and in that respect, it was similar. But here's what's different: at the very same time as we had all that, it was very compartmentalized. We were also advancing. There was no we we the Republican Party was a was a kind of home, but a uh, not not really embracing. Uh, McCarthyism. But at the same time, we had Eisenhower, a very decent man, as a Republican president, who was uh, basically uh, pursuing a, a, a constructive uh, America-building uh, agenda, whether you agree with all the ways he conducted, he and John Foster Dulles conducted the Cold War or not. You know, he built the interstate highway system, and, they're very, and he, uh, he helped desegregate the schools, enforcing the, the Supreme Court decision. I mean, we had a localized piece of pathology in the system growing out of the fears that emerged after World War II and the, the Soviet uh, uh, confrontation and the, uh, the fact that we are now vulnerable to weapons of mass destruction. People had a certain amount of fear that could be exploited by a demagogue, and that happened. But now, across the board, can you name an issue where there's constructive dialogue across with involving both parties? Can you name an, a single issue in which the Republican Party is advancing a reasonable solution to a genuine problem? I can't. You touch Even on... funding the government is an issue. <laughs> right. But with the, what Paul Krugman has just called the blackmail caucus. It's absurd. You touch on something that's interesting in talking about the McCarthy period that, that in many ways is something that we're facing today in an even larger sense, and that is genuine fear, fear of change, fear of the direction the country is going in, fear of technology, fear of so much that is different today that arguably is at the heart of driving 
what we see happening in the political process today? Well, you know, there, there, there are, um, there are, fear is, is all, always a dangerous thing to have drive politics because, well, I think that the psychologists have, have shown that, that in, in conditions of fear, uh, a lot of the higher critical functions uh, uh, break down. Uh, and we become more primitive and irrational in our functioning. Um, but the, there, we should distinguish between two different kinds of, of fear There's the, in the politics. There's the fear that emerges out of a scary situation. And in the wake of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then the, the uh, Soviet Union uh, having weapons which uh, they would have the means uh, somehow to deliver to us, you know, there is genuine reason to be uh, afraid but uh, then there's the fear which is cultivated uh, that uh, a political force I mean it could be an individual but in this case we, we, there, there's no individual I mean there are individuals that are important in terms of this force that's taken over the right but it's not a leader driven movement it is a more uh, systemic uh, piece of the American civilization that's coalesced. So you have this whole thing that's driving uh, fear. You can you can look at uh, um, you know Glenn Beck or or Rush Limbaugh uh, and Fox News that are telling people uh, at every turn that the you know that, that that well you know Obama wants to dis- you know destroy America. You know that's something to fear. Uh, Obama's coming for your guns. That's something to fear. Um, and then what the what the the Bush George W. Bush uh, administration did with the war on terror, where they just the opposite of the great leaders like Churchill and and Roosevelt in World War II, when they were really genuine major threats, who 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 brought out courage in people, Karl Rove and and Cheney and Bush, deliberately continually raised fear when there was nothing constructive for people to do with it and because it was a it was people's fears was something they could exploit and now we do have a wide number a wide swath of the american public that is quite afraid but it's mostly at threats that are either small or non-existent like sharia law but part of it part of i, I think what we're seeing is the degree to which politicians, and, and certainly Bush, Cheney, some of the things you're talking about are, are, are great examples of that, really exploit fear because there is an inherent fear that exists below that. People are scared to start with, and that kind of fear only amps it up, that, that there's a fear that things have changed, that the nature of education has changed, the nature of work has changed. If we look back to the Industrial Revolution, the changes that took place, the fears that took place in the country at that period, the the rise of labor unions, the rise of the progressive movement, all coming out of literally, you know, riots in the streets, riots at workplaces, bloody situations at workplaces, that that it was a similar period, although not as amped up, not as not to the same degree that everybody, because of technology, heard about the problems, you know, 24-7, but there is an inherent fear which this other kind of fear is so good at exploiting. Well, let me ask you this, Jeff. Is is it your wish for this to be just another episode of 
a list of episodes in American history and not something which has important properties that are u- unique to this moment. I think it, that the it, properties... It's my thesis that there's something, that something is different now, um, bothersome or disturbing. Well, I think that there are certainly serious, serious problems that we face and certainly serious issues that you raise and that need to be dealt with in some way. But I do think that it is just another hurdle that we have to overcome, that, that in fact the laws of gravity will return at some point. Well, as for what the future holds, um, I don't pretend to know. And I, you know, I really don't think anybody can know whether we're going to go back uphill toward a, being more of a city on the hill uh, at some point, or whether we are on a downward uh, um, slope that we will not be able to arrest. I, I really don't know. It could go either way as far as anything I know. But um, uh, in any event, there are some things I believe are unique. Now, let me just say, answer your, what you said specifically, which was that there are fears underneath. Uh, there are always fears in human beings. Um, there, you know, we happen to know that we're going to die, um, which is, you know, Becker uh, wrote a book, The Denial of Death, indicating that is a fundamental aspect of uh, force in, in human culture, uh, that we have difficulty dealing with the knowledge that we're going to die. So there's always going to be some fear. But, you know, let's just consider, for example, what happened in in Germany between World War One and mm-hmm. and uh, well World War Two? You could say that the elements that were there uh, were, had been there for for a, uh, more than a century. Uh, you could say uh, the, there's a book by an Israeli called "The Pity of It All" about the history of uh, uh, of uh, uh, Jew, Jews in Germany. Um, or the relation, how Germany related to the Jews from the 18th, 18th, early 18th century all the way to, to the rise of Hitler. So you could say, well, you know, there's nothing new here um, uh, the, the, in Germany uh, uh, in 1933 because, well, first of all, there's been militarism since, you know, Prussia was a militaristic uh, uh, society, so there's nothing new here. You could say that there's always been anti-Semitism, uh, so there's nothing new here. But what's important in a, to understand the dyna- dynamics of these kinds of things is not whether or not the elements are there, but w- is it going to be, the, what are the proportions? What a- aspects of them are growing stronger? And what aspects are growing weaker? And which aspects are running the show? Are the better aspects of the culture uh, running the show and keeping the worse aspects in check, or are the worse aspects running the show and keeping the be- and, and, and suppressing the better aspects? And that can shift. And I believe in America, in our time, it has shifted, and the ways in which it has gained power over the last generation threaten to make it difficult to retrieve. Now, I'm not hopeless. My wife is a candidate for state senate right now, taking on someone who embodies what's ruining our democracy. But, and therefore, you know, you can, and I ran for Congress three years ago, also taking on one of the representatives of what's gone wrong. 
so obviously we haven't given up here, but are we going to have a, a return to a government that's really for and by the people? Or is the takeover by big money, just to name an important aspect of the force that's taken over the right, is that, is that shift of power from people to the wealth system of billionaires in the corporate world going to continue to the point where we lose the tools to take back our power? I guess the overriding question is, do we get the kind of government that we deserve? Do we get the kind of government that we put in place? That the fault is not with the people in Washington, although there's plenty of fault there, don't get me wrong, but the fault is with the people that are electing those people. Well, uh, I don't think my book has been mentioned yet in our conversation, <laughs> um, um, which I hope we will rectify it. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm not much into blaming people because we are all the fruit of a world. I mean, you could take, for example, uh, there's been some really good articles in the wake of uh, Boehner's uh, resignation mm -hmm. about this um, belief on the, on the right that um, somehow by sheer act of will, even if you don't have the presidency, even if you can't get anything you want through the Senate, that if they don't manage to accomplish everything you want them to manage to accomplish, and I'm talking about the Republicans in the House, it must be because they didn't try. As if, as if somehow they, you know, people are, don't understand that there are realities of power and you can't always get what you want in a pluralistic society. Now, where did that ignorance come from? A lot of the people who believe that are not stupid people. How, how did they get shaped into being able to believe such a thing? They didn't, they, they, you know, are you going to blame people for that? It, when, they, when, they, when they're told that uh, climate change is a hoax, a science perpetrated by scientists. Now, we've got thousands of scientists across decades all over the world that have been coming to the same conclusion, and you've never had a scientific hoax remotely so huge as that. What kind of ignorance is it that allows people to believe that this is a scientific hoax? Are you going to blame people for that? Or are you going to look at what's been done by some very clever propagandists that have, that have uh, over the course of 20 years, taught people how not to think? I don't want to blame anybody. This is systemic. We have things going on in nexus of cause and effect that have had all these effects at all these levels that reinforce each other. And do we get the government we deserve? Well, I, what does it exactly mean that we deserve? I think we all deserve to live in a world that fulfills our deepest needs. And we don't get it, and a lot of us get damaged because of that. And some of the damaged people get so damaged that they make the world worse. To the extent that it is systemic, and I think we can certainly all agree to that, and to what extent then can it be taken out of the system? Does it have to get, I mean, is, does it require almost a kind of chemotherapy? Does it have to get worse before it gets better? Well, you know, my book is addressed to liberal America because in terms of responsibility, it is shared. Right. 
we've been talking all about the things that have gone wrong on the right, but we haven't even touched upon the failure of liberal America to respond appropriately to what has become increasingly visible over the last 20-some years, 25 years. We did not answer adequately the rise of a Rush Limbaugh poisoning the American conversation. I went into doing radio in 1992. I, I wasn't any Godzilla. I was more the Tweety Bird of talk, talk radio. But I did what I could to counter the kind of destructive conversation he was creating. Newt Gingrich did what he could to poison. And, and liberal America has failed to respond. George W. Bush was probably the most lawless president in American history. I would bet that he committed more than half of all the impeachable offenses in, that had ever been committed in, in the White House in, in more than two centuries. And liberal America never really mounted a, a, you know, he didn't even get censured, let alone impeached for what were indubitably high crimes and misdemeanors. And, 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 and you know, my, I open my book, What We're Up Against, by talking about the 2014 election, which was a d disaster for the Democrats, because, I would say, they didn't even raise what should have been the central issue of that election, which was that the Republicans had, right before our very eyes, done everything they could to cripple the American government and thwart the ability of, it, that, of, of our government to do the people's business, which, as far as I'm concerned, is, on the face of it, a betrayal of the country the least productive Congress in American history, and they didn't make that essentially treasonous act the central issue of the campaign. So I think that the, that the, the, the chemotherapy that's required is a strategy which I call see the evil, call it out, press the battle. And we, the, the weakness on the part of liberal America is what I try to explain and what I try to counter by lighting a fire with this book. Talk about the explanation a little bit. Talk about the reasons that you lay out that have led to liberal America taking the positions, taking the, the back seat, as you say. Well, I think that the reasons are probably many, including I think that the liberals are feel inhibited about going to battle for various reasons, one of which is fear, another of which is to the belief that somehow fighting is never the right thing to do. You know, so the spirit of Neville Chamberlain uh, needs to be replaced by the spirit of, of Winston Churchill. And I'm a guy who has 20-year history before this, this era of trying to build fences, build, build bridges between uh, uh, different points of view. That's what I tried to do in, in my, my radio work out here in the Shenandoah Valley. So that's one thing. But I think that the, there's a more fundamental thing having to do with a worldview in which the moral and spiritual dimensions are not taken with this, as, as seriously, as much as deeply to heart as, as they need to be because they are at the core of the human uh, condition and the human predicament. You know, there's a belief that, ha that has gone into the, human, in, into, the, into the intellectual culture that questions of value are somehow matters of opinion, that, that, 
issues of right and wrong, good and evil, are 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 not really they're 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 idiosync they're 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 matters of individual judgment, and, and I you know I try to describe some of my encounters with that uh, that attitude. So if you don't take seriously the idea that there is a difference that is built into the human world between those things that are that are good that that enhance life that serve life that make for greater fulfillment of us sentient creatures that create wholeness and those which create brokenness that that, that the difference between justice and injustice that beauty and and uh, and ugliness and love and hate and peace and war that these are vital differences if you don't really take those things to heart then you will not necessarily register how grave a thing it is when a force that imparts brokenness, that promotes injustice and ugliness and conflict, is something that, that threatens values that we hold sacred. And is that word sacred? Is that word uh, admitted into, uh, our, into our vocabulary? Do we believe that there's anything that's worth calling sacred? Which is another issue that I deal with. If you don't believe that they, that these things are fundamental and important, then you end up with a, with what the, a condition that uh, uh, William Butler Yeats, the great poet, described in a line, where the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. And that is that, in, indeed the world we live in today. That is the condition of America. I think it may be changing. I mean, look at the uh, feel the burn, uh, you know, the, the tens of thousands that are turning out for Bernie Sanders, who speaks pretty straight about what we're up against. He doesn't use all the language I, I do, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend he do uh, in his position. But he's pointing toward the, uh, the theft of our democracy. He's pointing toward the, uh, the stacking of the deck against a- average people where the wealth system is draining uh, the lives of average people to, to give to those that have the most. He's pointing to the climate change denial that is threatening the, the future of our children and grandchildren. He's pointing toward the important things. He doesn't use all the strong language I would like to have used. But the other thing that I want to just touch upon very briefly in terms of my answer to your question is that the question of good and evil is one to which I try to hear to provide a well-thought-out answer that has to do with not condemning people as evil, but seeing how there are nexes of forces, some of which are constructive, some of which are destructive, and that there is a dynamic always operating in civilized society of a conflict between these two sets of forces as to which one will shape the evolving nature of the system and the destiny of the people living in that system. And that is what's happening in America in our times, and the battle has not been going well. Talk a little bit about that whole issue of, of good and evil and the degree to which it should or should not be a part of political dialogue. Well, I, I mean, I've been using the word evil. Um, I guess I started this, this mission in 2004. That's when I saw what I saw. I mean, I, I, I had sort of understood that there were some things going on, but I didn't really get it until uh, the fall of 2004. And... Um, I think it was before New Year's that I, that I saw it well enough to be able to start saying we need to talk about there being a, 
a, a network of things going on here that one can discern beneath the surface an interconnected uh, set of of elements that are working together to impart a pattern of brokenness to everything it touches. And uh, it was in 2005 that I went around the country um, giving a, a talk called uh, The Concept of Evil, Why It Is Intellectually Valid and Politically and Spiritually Important. And it, again, it is a force it is a destructive force. You could just say a destructive force, and, and it, would mean, it could mean the same thing. I use the word evil because it has certain, certain properties, important properties, which uh, align with what over the, uh, the centuries or several millennia uh, we have called evil in, in Western civilization. It is a force that imp imparts a pattern of brokenness to everything it touches. It not only spreads brokenness, but it, it exploits brokenness where it finds it. Where people are wounded, it finds ways to uh, make use of that to advance its, its, uh, its power in shaping the human world. And when it, it manifests through people, you, it manifests through the things that we have generally regarded as aspects of evil like greed and, and sadism and cruelty and the lust for power and, and, and things like that that we see in the, those who are acting as channels for this force. So because of those parallels and also because the word evil has the capacity to uh, ignite within us a sense of the gravity and the moral and spiritual importance of the battle that's going on. I think that if liberal America can connect with, its, with, with our moral and spiritual passions, which, like at Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whom I've, of whom I've read now ten biographies or something, if you look at his words, he imparted moral and spiritual passion to the American people with his speeches, both with respect to the confrontation of the, uh, with, the, with the Great Depression and with respect to the, the world war in which he was our leader. There it is possible. And, and look at Lincoln's words. He did the same thing. When, if we can connect liberal America with the moral and spiritual passions to defend these things that are at stake, like the gift our founders gave us, like a livable planet where nature is healthy and intact and able to sustain our lives. If we can connect with those things, we can push this thing back. But if we stay weak while the, while the worst are filled with a passionate intensity, this battle is lost. Part of it is, and we're almost out of time, but when you look at things that fall into that rubric of evil, whether it's greed or the lust for power or some of the other things that you talk about, many of those things are, have become things which are elevated, which are celebrated within our context today. Well, you know, I, I, Anne Rand uh, has become, you know, I, when I first encountered Anne Rand, <laughs> I thought it was, you know, I was hard-pressed hard to understand how any intelligent person would credit that. But, you know, it's sort of an anti-Christianity. You know, it's, 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 it's like what you just said. It's mm -hmm. uh, celebrating the very things that, uh, that make the world 
uh, a place of, of, of suffering and has since the beginnings of civilization. And I, one of the things in, that my work is about is how the rise of civilization uh, imparted a pattern of brokenness un, that we inadvertently unleashed inevitably unleashed is not a reflection of human nature but we've never been able to to overcome it but uh, you know between the idea of that po the pope just uh, reiterated uh, which i think is really important to keep in front of do unto others as you would have others do unto you and the contrary is uh, what uh, thucydides uh, quotes the athenians as saying to the people they're about to exterminate you know that the, the the strong do what they can while the weak suffer what they must. You know, between those two ethics is the question of what the human world is going to be like. And we, if we really uh, have every reason to be impassioned in wanting the golden rule and not the rule of of power to be what shapes our destiny and our children and grandchildren's destiny. Andrew Schmuckler, his book is What We're Up Against, The Destructive Force at Work in Our World and How We Can Defeat It. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you, Jeff, and I, I hope that, uh, I hope that, uh, that, that, that what we're up against is now available on Amazon. It's easier to deal with the title than with my name. And um, <laughs> so I just want people to know that. And I really much appreciate the chance to talk with you and your listeners. Thank you so much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.